0: Well, turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2. Hopefully you had a great Thanksgiving. We actually land just after Thanksgiving on a passage that mentions Thanksgiving, the need to be thankful. Ideally, it would have been nice if we were a week ahead in the schedule. I'm just not that organized or that disciplined to notice something that far out and plan it weeks and weeks before, because really it would mean weeks and weeks before of uh, negotiating passages and in messages in order to land on specifically verse seven which mentions thanksgiving there in Colossians two but we'll get to it today as part of our as part of our study of God's word as we work our way through this great book of Colossians written by the apostle Paul let's start in verse one of Colossians two we'll focus on verses six through eight but we'll start in verse one Paul writes in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving." See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Well, with some parts of God's word, you have a personal story, an experience that goes along with that passage, that, a story that comes immediately to mind when you read that part of God's word. These few verses of Colossians take me back to my sophomore year of college. I just finished a year at the University of Michigan as a biochemistry major and was eager to go to a Christian liberal arts school and to study the Bible. So one of my first classes had as an early requirement memorizing Colossians 2, 6 through 8. I was thrilled that was part of my college curriculum. I'm sure it's not for everybody. Whatever it is that led you to your profession that you're in, you probably didn't take the wrong path. You wouldn't necessarily have been better off by going a Bible route or a ministry route, but it was for me. And it got me going down a path of serious and insatiable Bible memorization throughout college. This is one of the first passages of Scripture I memorized. In high school, my youth pastor got me to memorize James 1, 2, and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials, because you know how trial-filled high school is. I'm not sure why he gave me that passage, but I memorized that passage first in high school, and then in college, like I said, this was basically the second passage I ever memorized, and uh, really it got me hungry for God's Word and um, encouraged in God's direction in my life at the time. I'm sure you have passages that have their own story as well. Well, there are a few different ways to intro these verses, to tell us what they're about, verses 6 through 8. One way is by noticing the therefore right at the beginning of verse 6, which means that we should see what it's what? Therefore, have you heard that before? If you see a therefore, find out what it's there for. It's like a so, S-O. You see that and you should know it's a connector. You should back up and see why the so or why the therefore is is there. Well, Paul, according to verse 5, is eager to come to Colossae and to take inventory of the church and the surrounding churches. He says to see their good order and to see that their faith is firm. Okay, so what does good order look like? What does firm faith look like? What will he expect to see more specifically when he gets there? What, what will he be looking for that will tell him when he does this sort of investigation, sort of this inventory? It's almost like a colonel showing up and wanting to see things in straight rows. He wants to see the military in good form. What will he look for? Well, that's what verses 6 and following tell us. Another way to look at this, though, if we back up a little bit more to verses 2 and 3, we see these wonderful words, these descriptive words, that there are riches in Christ in verse 2. There are treasures of wisdom and knowledge in verse 3. Riches and treasures. That's what we want in Christ. That's what we should want. We should want the treasures and riches of Christ above all and above any riches. Of course, Paul wants that for the Colossians, so he says that he's been laboring, right? He's been struggling, is the word in verse 1. He's been struggling to that end that they would get more of the riches of Christ. They would see more of the treasures of the knowledge and wisdom that are in Christ. But What must the Colossians do to get to these treasures, to get more of these riches? Well, that's what verses 6 through 8 are about. Or another way to put all this is that the message of verses 6 through 8 is simply this. Having believed, what's next? What do you do? What follows? Well, Paul tells them what's next. He gives them the basics. He gives a quick overview, a Christianity 101. You believe, now what? You're a church, you're Christ's. you're redeemed, you're reconciled, you're forgiven. What do you do? What's, what's to come? Well, what's not surprising to you if you've been Here at Desert Springs, while we've been going through the book of Colossians, and you've seen most of these previous weeks' studies, what's not surprising is that the what's next of verses 6 through 8 is what's always next for Christians. You never graduate from this What's next? You never move on to a second tier of Christianity and Christian living. By the way, that's just a a good thing to tuck away. Any book you come across about Christian life, any teaching you hear from someone about the Christian life, that sounds like it makes two classes of Christians, two tiers of Christianity, Whether it's those who say you first accept him as savior, then later on it's optional, it's for the the elite, you you accept him as lord later on at some point. Or those who say you can be forgiven, but then later there's this experience called baptism of the Holy Spirit and you get that and then you're a super saint. Or or those who say you can be forgiven, but you can be a, a carnal Christian. And so you should break on through to the other side. You should abide in Christ. Let go and let God in. There's a kind of cloud nine kind of Christian living that's available to you that you're missing out on, most of you. Well, all these are two-tier Christianities. And none of them, in my opinion, are in the Bible. What's next in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 8, is what's always next for the Christians. So this message is not just for non-Christians who need a glimpse of what the Christian life is like so they can you know, get a taste of it before they buy in. It's not just for new Christians who've received Christ and now need some basics about what to do for living and priorities and conduct for the rest of their lives now that they're in Christ. This message, these verses are equally for every Christian, even for those who have been Christians and been doing the Christian life for many, many years. What's next never really changes. And that might take some getting used to. That might take some wrestling with yourself, with your soul, to get to the point where you're okay with Christianity being... The same thing for a really long time. Some of you have been very successful in your work, your jobs. You've almost always done the next thing, right? You most most always have gone on to the bigger thing. You've always aimed for the job above you. And several times now, you've gotten the job that is or was above you. During my 20s, I was pretty busy about the next thing. Do the next thing. I was never content. I mean, that's part of being in your twenties, right? You, someone who's in their early twenties and says, "That's it. I'm done. I, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life." They're probably not doing much. So it's part of being in your twenties. You you know you you move on to this. You move on to that. You, you you know. For me, it meant I was I was ordained at 23. I was a preaching pastor at 24. I was always interested in the next degree, whatever. That one was. And then I came here to Desert Springs when I was 28 years old. And I said to this church, and I say it today, I want this to be my last stop. I believe in long-term ministry. I want to grow old with you, with this people, this church. And so I quickly had to realize at 28, that instinct you have for what's next has to die. you got to cut that out now. There's nothing next. You don't move on just to something bigger or something better or something that pays more or something like that. Well, the Christian life is like that. Your job may not like that. My job is like that. My job is a. there's nothing next, Lord willing. There's nothing better, Lord willing. But the Christian life is definitely like that, where you can't always think something's next. Of course, we're always growing in more of what we already have. There's growth in the Christian life, but it's not a new kind of thing that we're after. That's the very thing that had been tempting some of the Colossians away. And its surrounding areas there around Colossae, Paul is combating this allure of a complex, multi-layered Christian life system by reminding them all of the simplicity of it all. The simplicity of God's plan. And now in his plan, it's the church and love in the church and love for each other, teaching and growing in knowledge of Christ together and communion with him. There's growth in these things, but you don't graduate from these things. I think New Testament scholar N.T. Wright is right when he says this. Verses 6 and 7 Colossians 2, sum up the center of what Paul wants to say in this letter. Everything that's come so far prepares for this. Everything that's going to come after leads on from it. So verses 6 and 7 and 8 too, really, are something like the hub in the wheel of this letter. But what I have to confess, verses 6 and 7 feel a little repetitive to me. As I prepared to teach this passage this week, I kept finding myself wanting to say things very similarly to how and what I've already said from the previous verses. Verses 6 through 8, if anything, feel like a simpler version of some of what's already come before. That might be less spectacular, less flashy, but it's no less important no less needed. And by the way, aren't simplicity and brevity, shortness, uniquely important and needed? Right? Describe the Christian life. Well, one way of describing the Christian life is everything about it. in every commandment in it. And then you feel sometimes a little dizzy about it all. Right? Well, there's this debate. And then there's this responsibility. And then there's this angle to to all what's going on here. But verses 6 through 8 here are not all of what it means to be a Christian. Every commandment is not in here. But the brevity and the simplicity of these verses give us something unique. It tells us what it's all about. It gives us something of a forest snapshot. We need that even though we sometimes do need to get up close to trees. Okay, you can follow along on the sermon notes page you have in your bulletin as we try to unfold these three verses together this morning. The first thing to see is, having received Christ, we're to walk in him. Having received him, you walk in him. It says in verse 6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. That phrase is nowhere else found in the New Testament. Paul uses different formulas for these same words. Lord, Jesus, Christ. This is the only place he puts them in this specific order. It may be that he's trying to draw attention to the heresy, the false teaching that's been plaguing Colossae and the other churches in that area. But whatever it is, Christ Jesus the Lord is shorthand. For all of who Christ is and what he came to do. There are three pregnant words there Christ, Jesus, Lord. It means he's Messiah, it means he's the promised one, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The promises pointed all to him and were fulfilled in him. He's the Savior. Jesus means God saves. He's Lord. He's King. But not just a human king. He's God. And yet not just God alone. He's Jesus. He was given a human name because he was born of a woman. He's a man. It's shorthand for what well, what, what Paul already said about Jesus in chapter 1. Remember verse 15 to verse 20 was a nugget a, a poem. Some say an early church hymn of describing Christ's attributes and Now his work. Christ Jesus the Lord is shorthand for who he is. Now, notice in verse 6 of chapter 2, becoming a Christian is receiving him. That's shorthand for the whole conversion experience, right? It's a quick way of describing what it means when someone hears the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in the place of sinners as an expression of God's love to humanity to die in their place to give forgiveness and bring reconciliation to them. They hear it first, but then there has to be an acknowledgement of the problem. It has to get personal. It's not theoretical. If it's going to be real and we really receive Christ, that receiving has to include a A word we see often in Acts called repentance. Seeing our need of Christ is what repentance is. Seeing, yes, the waywardness of our souls, our sin, and the judgments to come and hating that sin. And then seeing that Christ is the answer to fixing the problem. There's repentance and faith, believing. There's this embracing. It's not a theoretical belief or faith. You can see in the word receiving, The person who is receiving is doing something. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century London preacher, he said, Receiving seems to imply a sense of realization, making it a matter of reality. We don't receive a dream. We don't receive a shadow. Only something real is received. So we should, he says, get a grip of it. We should grasp it. That's what receiving means. It's also the very opposite of earning. There's no earning going on if we're receiving it. It's a gift. Christ has done it. He has earned it for us. And notice it says we receive him. We receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Not just His grace, but we receive Him. It's personal. There's so much there in those pregnant words. Christ Jesus the Lord, you've received Him. Have you? That be said of you you've received Christ Jesus as Lord? That it's now personal, that you recognize it's the opposite of earning, that you once heard it and you saw your need of it and you believed it as true and embraced it as your own pray that that's true of you. It's true of the Colossians. They had received Christ, but what's next? Well, walk in him. You see that? As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, do you remember from a, a few weeks ago, we talked about the difference between indicatives and imperatives. These aren't Bible words. These are grammar words. But they help us understand parts of the Bible. Help us categorize parts of what the Bible is doing and saying to us. Parts of the Bible are indicative. They indicate something. They describe. And so far, Colossians has only given us indicatives. Christ is like this. Christ is on his throne. Christ has done this. This is what you are like in Christ. It's description. It indicates. And then there are imperatives. So you should... You must do this. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't step in that. Those are all imperatives. They're commandments. They're musts. They go together. We need both. But the indicative is maybe the thing that's lacking the most today in the American 21st century church culture. Well, notice Colossians 2 6, this is the first imperative. So, walk in him. That's a command. Now, remember, it took a whole chapter and five verses before Paul got to that. Notice also that it's really so general, so unspecific, so unspectacular walk in him. Remember when we talked about this some weeks ago, I said that all of us, myself included, love very specific imperatives. We not only want the Bible's imperatives to be the majority of a Sunday morning message, but ideally they're even the preacher's imperatives, his good advice on how to do the biblical imperatives. Well, here we have an imperative That you can see is pretty typical of scripture. It's general. It's unspecific. It's unspectacular. And we don't always know exactly when we've done it. And that's why we want something more specific sometimes. Than what the Bible gives us as far as commandments. And wants and dos. We want something that we can check off the list. We want something we can say. There I've done it. And now I feel good. Those are imperatives. Divorced of indicatives. And they're imperatives that aren't the Bible's imperative so many times. In fact, notice in this imperative, in verse 6, walk in him, how attached it is to the indicative. You walk in him. I mean, you have theological description right there in the midst of this practical exhortation. Or you could put it the other way around. The practical and the theological can't even get a few words apart from each other. When Paul's saying, walk, live, do, it's a walking that's in him. It's theological. It's identity. It begs the question of who's him and what's it mean to be in him? And the Bible answers that in many manifold ways and often very theological ways oh but the importance of getting the as and the so is so so important as you have received christ or as you have been forgiven as you've been reconciled so now you should indicative and imperative each needs to have its proper place and Proper weight and one can't be overlooked and the other one can't be minimized. What this means is that Christianity is infinitely more than a new code of conduct, a new list of morals, a new, a new set of rules. Christianity is all about living as you are, living in light of a new identity, a walk, Paul calls it. Let's talk about that metaphor for a while. There are other metaphors, word pictures for the Christian life in Scripture. Scripture tells us the Christian life is like a marathon, uh, it's like a boxer in a, in a boxing match, it's like a wrestling, um, it's also like farming, we're told. But walk, Christian life being a walk, that's probably the most common, most frequently used word picture for the Christian life. Let me just give you a few examples. Ephesians 5:8. You were in darkness, but now you're in light, so walk as children of the light. You see identity and identity then leading to behavior, new direction, change of priorities and ideals. Philippians 3.17 is very practical. Paul says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example we gave you. Look for people who are examples. They're walking. Oh, they're not literally walking. Well, they might be literally walking. They might be literally jogging doesn't really matter what they're doing with their legs. What matters is what they're doing with their hearts and their minds and their conducts, their families and their jobs. When you see a pattern that's like what we've commanded you, keep watching them. Colossians 1.10, the same book. we are told to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's what Paul was praying. Fully pleasing him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There you, you have a A bit of a definition of walk. Walking is walking worthy. Walking in the Christian life is bearing fruit. Walking in the Christian life is increasing in the knowledge and communion with God. One more, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, where Paul says, We exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God that you still excel more. You see the word picture there? We told you how to walk. As you got that, as you do that, we want you to know, we want you to hear us loud and clear, we want you to do it more. We want you to walk harder. We want you to walk further. We want you to walk more consistently and more persistently and more disciplined. A walk, just that word picture. I know we're used to it, but but how often do we dissect it? I've been preaching for 10 years now. I went looking at my files for a, a time where I have really unpacked the word walk. Preached on a number of passages where we find the word walk. And yet I haven't really camped out on what Paul means, what the Bible means when they talk about Christian life being a walk. It, doesn't it imply perseverance? You keep going. Does it imply something about habit? Some of you who are walkers, right? Or runners. You, you know it's, it's either a habit or you don't really do it. It implies constancy. Because it's not a walk. A walk of Sunday morning. Sunday morning you, you walked or you didn't walk and you check it off. The kind of walk Paul's talking about here is not a walk that's limited just to Bible reading. He doesn't talk about the Bible reading walk. There's nothing before it. It's just open-ended. It's just walk. That means everywhere, all the time, everything being part of the walk. Of course, it's not a perfect walk. Sometimes we trip. Sometimes we get tired and we sit down, which is about as dumb as any racer doing that in the middle of a race. But we do it in the Christian life often. We all admit it. We all know it well. Sometimes we lose our way on our walk. Sometimes we juice up illegally in our walk. Right? We we almost look for these things outside of the walk that will strengthen us like like an athlete cheats with steroids. Of course we know in the long run it doesn't really help. We're supposed to keep on walking even if we do lose our way even if we know it's not perfect even if we stumble and trip and sometimes sit down it implies though that there's a progression when you go on a walk you're going somewhere I know the analogy breaks down a little bit if you have a um, if you had a, a what are they called? the thing where you walk in place a treadmill yes one of those I don't have one can you tell? You know, okay, so you're not going anywhere in your treadmill when you walk, but every other time you walk, you're going somewhere. There's progression. There's direction. There's purpose. There even is a goal in the Christian walk. Heaven. By the way, have you read Pilgrim's Progress? John Bunyan's 17th century classic, which is the second most printed English book in history? You need to read it. What a great picture of the walk, of the journey. The whole thing is about going to the celestial city and and seeing all the hang-ups along the way. And really the takeaway lesson is get on the walk and you stay on the walk. When you get into the miry clay and it bogs you down, the slew of despond, it call, Bunyan calls it. When you're in there, you've got to wiggle your way out. There are means of getting out and Scripture's part of that and friends are help to that. Read Pilgrim's Progress. There are maybe a dozen different kinds of versions of it available. Some that will be more applicable to your kids and some that will be old English classics if that's your cup of tea but pilgrim's progress is a a great takeaway from this message this morning all right more quickly now having set all this up let's quickly go through the rest of these points secondly we're seeing this having been rooted in christ be built up and strengthened verse 7 now i use an esv many of you do that's the version here in our worship center doesn't quite capture the literal grammatical structure of verse 7. Verse 7 should feel a lot more like verse 6 than the ESV makes it. So look at verse 7 in your ESV or whatever translation you have. and, And let me not read it for you, but kind of give you some paraphrase that helps you understand what this is really saying. What it's saying is, "...having been..." already past tense having been rooted in Christ so now you are being built up in him that's what's missing is the so now in the ESV the you are already being built up and are currently being built up in him you are being strengthened in the faith let's talk about rooted in Christ that's already It's past tense. Christians who have believed and have received, they are now rooted in Christ. It's the idea of needing nutrition, being utterly dependent, of Christ being the the farmer, and he's planted us. It's so comforting that we can know that we're already rooted in his soil, even when it feels like we're detached. That there's life going on even when it feels like there's no life going on. I remember as a kid having to plant some plants in the backyard for my mom and thinking, surely there's something wrong here. I'm missing something. Surely it's got to be more complicated than taking this dirt clod with a thing on top and putting it deep enough in the ground and then burying it back up and making sure there's water on it. Surely I didn't plant it enough or plant it well enough or hook up up the wires to it. Where are the wires? No wires. It just amazingly grows if it's properly rooted and if there's nutrition going in. It's like that in the Christian life. Even when it doesn't look like it's growing, there's growth. He says, you are now being built up. He switches from a plant metaphor. You were rooted now to a construction metaphor. You've been built up. You are being built up. Like there's a footer. Guys, you know this. If you know construction, there's a footer. And you're working from that footer building up. Rock upon rock or brick upon brick. Brick upon brick. He says, the Christian life is a walk. In verse 6, he says, it's a plant, and now he says, it's a building. And this is something that's being done to us. We are being built up. Yes, it implies responsibility, something we do. But here it's put in what's called the passive voice, something that's done to me. You are, Christian, being built up. Listen to what Sam Storms says about this. I don't know about you, but I desperately need to be reassured that my life, body, soul, and spirit are rooted in Christ and what he's done for me. Being rooted and grounded in my own good intentions, or the promises of other people, or whatever worldly and financial success I might attain, doesn't do much for me when life stinks and my soul sinks. I need to know that I'm rooted in him. He goes on to say, I desperately need to know that he's still at work in me, slowly but surely building up what I've tore down, confirming and shaping my soul to look like his. He says oftentimes our spiritual and moral failures look massive and seem to dwarf our Achievements. But I'm assured of this, nothing will lead Jesus to forsake his work in me. In fact, Sam Storms goes on. He says, Paul goes on to say that we're also being established. And the word here is often used to describe the practice of guaranteeing a legal contract. In other words, God has bound himself to me. He has formally pledged himself to my growth in grace in his son he has sealed the document of ownership i am his and he is mine and he will continue to confirm and solidify me in the experience and knowledge of all that he's made known of himself for me in christ that's good news indeed We're being built up in him, being strengthened in the faith, he says there in verse 7. Notice it says the faith. Not just being strengthened in faith, strengthened in the faith, which sometimes means the gospel. The faith is the gospel sometimes in scripture. Other times, the faith can mean that whole body of beliefs that should be ours when we generally, not perfectly, no one will perfectly get it right, but when we generally get it right, what God has revealed to us in his word. And it's usually not clear whether one is meant or the other, whether the faith means the gospel or whether the faith means the whole body of doctrine revealed to us in God's word. But I think that's Paul's point. Paul's point is that both are true. Christians need to be strengthened in the gospel, the faith, and the doctrine of the word of God called the faith. That's what they need to be strengthened. By the way, notice how different most of evangelicalism refers to faith and growing in faith. My faith is usually the word that comes before faith. My faith. Very personal, very experiential, very independent, but Paul's talking about the faith, the objective outside of us, historic gospel, the revealed to us in the word of God truth come from the apostles and written for us down through the ages. That's what we need, that's what we're being built up in and being strengthened in. Now, how are we strengthened? Well, in part, that's part of the third point in your outline. Having been taught, be thankful. Just as you were taught. Is that phrase there in verse 7. As you were taught refers to everything before it and everything after it. So if you look down in your Bibles and you see that phrase, as you were taught, realize that that looks backward to the fact that you were being built up by being taught. You're being strengthened by being taught. And it also looks forward, forward to the next part, being thankful. They were taught to be thankful, like hopefully we all were. In fact, he says abounding in thanksgiving or overflowing with thankfulness. You see how important Paul makes thankfulness here? I mean, he describes a walk in part. It means being strengthened. Right? It means being taught. That's, that's part of the walk. Not much is described here about the walk and what it is. It's just that we should walk in him and that it requires strength and we're being strengthened. And he is building us up and that's part of the walk. Being taught is part of the walk. And thankfulness is part of the walk. And no small part. You see, the way Paul is speaking about thankfulness here in Colossians 2 is that it's not just one of the things that Christians are to be and to do. It's a root thing. It's a summary thing. It's kind of a litmus test thing. Remember, he's going to come and he's going to inspect them. He's looking for firm faith. And part of what will tell him about the firmness of their faith is the mark of overflowing thankfulness. Thankfulness is indicative of the Christian life. It's something like an essential expression of the Christian life. It's a lot like forgiveness. Us forgiving others. Christians forgive others of their offenses to them because they've been forgiven of infinitely more by God. I don't need to tell you that there are a handful of Bible verses that warn us that we really don't know anything of God's forgiveness if we ourselves can't forgive others, won't forgive others. You've come across those, right? The same measure you forgive, it'll be forgiven you. Now these verses don't teach us to earn our forgiveness by doing forgiveness to others. No. His forgiveness to us comes first. But where a heart can't forgive fellow sinners of their relatively pity, uh, pitily sins, there may not have been a true understanding of their own sin. There may not have been true repentance, there may not have been true faith, there may not be divine forgiveness in that heart. In other words, our ability to forgive becomes something of a litmus test for the genuineness of whether our sins have been forgiven by God. After all, didn't Jesus say the world can forgive in some way? The world can forgive those people who are nice, or forgive those people who also forgive them, or forgive those people who only do it once. Christians are called to ridiculous forgiveness because they've experienced ridiculous forgiveness. Well, thankfulness is a similar kind of thing, isn't it? A similar kind of litmus test because it naturally springs from the heart that understands sin and judgment and forgiveness and reconciliation and a hundred other wonderful spiritual blessings that are ours In Christ. Now, do you remember back in chapter 1, would you look at verses 10 to 12 real quickly while we still camp out on thankfulness, especially because we're just on the heels of having celebrated it in our culture in a unique way for the calendar year? Verses 10 to 12, Paul talks about thankfulness there. Remember, he gives five things that he's praying for, that they should be pleasing Bearing fruit, verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. And then verse 11, being strengthened. And then verse 12, giving thanks. Now if you remember from when we looked at those verses, I said those phrases seem to be building off one another. It's not just a list. There's connection and there's progression. They feed into each other. One is how you do the ones before it. So look at the list in verses 10 to 12. Pleasing him is how you walk worthy. Bearing fruit is how you please God. Increasing in the knowledge of God is part of how you bear fruit. You need power to keep increasing in the knowledge and fruit of God. And then verse 12, giving thanks is a way in which you're actually strengthened. It's not just something that's right, It's something of the means by which we grow. By which we get endurance and joy. Giving thanks fuels other things that we're to do in the Christian life. So no surprise that Paul talks more about thankfulness than any other ancient writer, pagan or Christian. He talks about this theme 46 different times. In his relatively short letters. That's a common theme. That's a big theme. So even though it's a short part of this passage we're looking at. Just three words. Overflowing in thankfulness. What would it look like for you to be overflowing in thankfulness? What would it look like? I mean... Wouldn't it mean 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all things, not just some things? Not just the obvious things, not just the culturally required things. We all know how to celebrate Thanksgiving and be thankful. We all know how to give thanks at Christmas with Christmas gifts. We all know how to give thanks to someone who's been nice to us. or, Or even when, in those times in the year, we should be thankful for that person, just as a person, like at Valentine's or birthdays. But Paul says, be thankful in all things. Overflow with it. Be abundant with it. Let, it. let thankfulness be popping out and oozing over. Psalms would tell us in many different places that we do it with our whole heart. Thank him with the whole heart. Which means, I think, we've got to work to get there. We have to stir up thankfulness. We have to aim for joyful humble exaltation in christ for who he is and what he's done and we have to ruminate on who he is and what he's done in order to get there we have to preach to ourselves when we don't feel it we need to tell ourselves how wrong it is when we're not thankful confess it to god and pray for his help all right one more point and just as a an arrow for what's to come next week. Having Christ, don't be captivated by anything else. Having Christ. You already have Christ. Verse 8 at the end, it says, not according to Christ, which I think means you have Christ already. What you have is according to him. So keep him. Don't accept substitutes. In fact, he uses a word here, don't be captivated by false substitutes. Now, you might think captive means prison, but then you might think of how we talk about being captivated, and it has the connotation of being allured, right? Being entranced. Well, both connotations should be in mind here. Be entranced with Christ and not with substitutes, not with additions. Be captive in Christ, entranced in him, allured by him. Now, next week we'll talk about what that alluring, imprisoning doctrine was that Paul had in mind. It, what philosophy? He uses that word in verse 8. He uses the phrase human traditions in verse 8 as part of the warning that he's giving this Colossian church. For our time this morning, it's, it's not a concern what he was warning them of except to say that any substitute would fall under these same warnings. What he's telling us is be captivated by Christ, and by Christ alone, you have the best already. So several simple reminders that we never outgrow, and we always need until the new heaven and the new earth There's nothing greater in all the world than to know Christ and to be known by him and be firm in our faith. The soil we're planted in as Christians is Christ and his gospel. We don't need another soil. He's planted us there, not we ourselves. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, it says in 1 Corinthians 1. And if we're planted in him... And planted by Him, then we should also know, just like any plant you see in your backyard, it's being grown by Him. He is growing us, He's building us up, even when it feels like He's not. Nevertheless, there's genuine responsibility. We are to grow. We're to read and pray and give and serve and love and discipline and hate sin, to repent, to give ourselves these things with seriousness. And to remember that no insignificant part of the Christian life is to be overflowing with thankfulness. Focus on thankfulness. Not just the week of Thanksgiving, not just the week to follow. Not just in the month of November or leading up to Christmas. Focus on thankfulness. Paul does here. You can do that. Thankfulness is a kind of litmus test. Thankfulness is a kind of hallmark. It's a kind of necessary product of what it means to be forgiven and to be in Christ.